This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to episode 67 of Aviation Careers Podcast, the podcast where we give you an inside look into aviation careers. You know, today I have with me somebody really special, someone who uh, does some bush flying actually in in the mountains and and also <laughs> over all these different uh, big forests and, and amazing different airports that are, are not paved and dirt strips, etc. But you know, a lot of times when we watch these movies about the the... the life of a bush pilot we think it's really you know glamorous you know i envision a bush pilot swooping down from the heavens above to provide emergency medical supplies to a sick child then later that day we slowly climb above the bright green canopy of the trees to a burnt orange sunset smiling from ear to ear as we glide towards our next adventure you know i'm sure there are many days like these flying as a mission pilot in the bush but there are so many challenges you know, today, like I said, we ha- I have with me someone who can help us understand what it's really like to be a bush pilot because he lives it every day. Brian Pottinger is a mission pilot flying in the mountains and jungles of Papua, Indonesia. And today he's going to give us a real story behind being a bush pilot and also a mission pilot. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, Carl. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. You know, we've been in a conversation uh, for quite some time now and discussing aviation careers, and, and you've done some great help with bringing uh, different pilots to the U.S. to get trained and do some mission uh, flying, and, uh, and you have an incredible background. So one thing I want to do is, and, and over the months we've been talking about this, I really, I really want to know, you know, what it's, it's truly like to be a, to be a mission pilot. But, but before we do that, just a, a little bit of background with you. You know, why, why are you there and, and how did you get to where you are? Well, that's a really great question. It's, uh, it's kind of amazing. Actually, um, we came to missions a little bit later in life. Um, actually, I owned a, a commercial printing company in Cleveland, uh, Ohio, and, um, you know, just started flying. It was, it was really interesting. It's been about 1990, I guess. I started flying just as, uh, just for fun, you know, uh, as a diversion to get away, get out of the, 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 the printing business and get away and get off the ground and, you know, just have some fun. And, uh, so I started flying just doing that. And it wasn't long after that, that I just really felt like, uh, God was calling us to, you know, to do more, to do more with that. And uh, so we ended up selling the printing business and uh, moved into Mission Aviation, which wasn't without its bumps because um, at the time, almost all mission pilots also had to be licensed mechanics. And uh, so, you know, when I started looking into it, they're like, oh, do you have your mechanics license? I said, oh, no, I don't. And they're like, okay, well, you have to go get that first. And so ended up working for another mission organization uh, for about three years as I apprenticed to get my, my airframe and power plant mechanics license and then then of course moved on into uh into the realm of mission flying and so it was a little bit of a long road it took about eight years to get there but we finally made it so is that something that's normal for most mission pilots to also be mechanics um i think so uh now um at the it, it's getting a little bit less that way as we move more and more into the realm of, of larger, faster turbine aircraft. It's becoming more, um, 
more common for people to specialize. I mean, pilots are pilots, mechanics are mechanics. It's kind of hard for the the you know to be both the pilot and the mechanic on a large you know uh, larger turbine aircraft like a, a caravan or whatever. It's so specialized the knowledge that you have to have that I don't think that one person could do both. So you actually were the type of person that went from I would say a hobby or a diversion into actually making it your full-time career. Uh, sounds like you did a little bit later in life. That's right, yeah. I was um, 35 when we first, uh, well, actually I was 35 when we first actually started heading towards the mission field, so I was about 32 or so when we um, made the decision to, to leave um, you know, the corporate world or the, or the business world and move into missions. But, um, yeah, at the time people were, you know, the missions were kind of like, Oh, if you're, if you're 35, you know, you're starting to get a little bit too old. Uh, you know, they're looking for younger guys, you know, that, uh, would have faster reflexes and, you know, easier to learn new skills and those kinds of things, at least, that was the the concept or the mindset at the time, but that's changed so much over the last ten years that they're realizing that that maybe you know hiring the youngest you know the younger guys right out of college may not be the best, and they're looking for people now that are have a little bit of life experience behind them as well and sometimes you know it's not just about reflexes it's about judgment isn't it absolutely and that's the the number one. Uh, thing that we're looking for in mission aviation, you know, oftentimes people ask me all the time, you know, what, um, you know, what do I need to work on? What do I, what kind of skills do I need? You know, uh, do I need to go out and start, you know, doing a bunch of short field work and that kind of thing? And my answer is, is not really, um, all that can be taught later on. It's more the, the decision-making, you know, the situational awareness, uh, your judgment, those kinds of things are, or what we're really looking for when we start looking for a new pilot is somebody that has that critical thinking and those decision-making and problem-solving skills that allow them to make really good decisions uh, quickly. Yeah, and, they, and, and what's interesting is that's something that, that I find is true in the airlines, and no matter what job you're looking at, you know, it's important to have those skills and to have that, that ability to actually make decisions. Flying skills are flying skills. They can be taught. That's, that's awesome. You know, one thing though, and and I'm I'm still struggling with the whole mission pilot thing. I think a lot of people we we get a lot of questions about this, and bush flying, et cetera. And they they uh, I think the perception's a lot different than reality. First of all, let's let's talk about the good things. Let's talk about why would someone become a mission pilot? I mean, why why do you do it? Well, you know, people I think come to missions and uh, especially to mission aviation for for lots of different reasons, whether it be you know, some some people do come for the challenge of the flying. Uh, others come because they really, truly want to um, help people. You know, I mean, it, whether it's in a physical sense or in a spiritual sense, they really have that desire to to reach out and to help other uh, others. And then there's those that are truly, you know, just just the straight out missionary. You know, I'm here to just you know really evangelize and to share Christ and to uh, be Christ to these people, and that's and that's awesome too. And I'm not sure exactly where on that spectrum I I totally fit, but um, I really do care about people. And I think that you know the per, one one of the things if, if you're considering coming into mission aviation and you and you just want to do it for the flying, you're you're not going to be happy. I mean, those people that come out and say, oh, I just want to fly, I just want to fly, you know, we see that all the time. And they're the ones that, that end up, you know, not, not lasting, you know, more than a few years or, or, or are, are just really, really unhappy 
with, uh, you know, with their job. And uh, you got to really have a heart for the people. You have to really care about others. And I find that's the most rewarding part of my job is, you know, the, the opportunity that we get to be able to really change somebody's life. Um, whether that's, you know, bringing food in to, you know, somebody that, you know, a group of people that's, you know, starving or whether that's, you know, somebody or just last week, uh, had an opportunity to, uh, to bring a young man had fallen out of a tree and broken his leg and I brought him to the hospital. And so, you know, with the, the way the leg fracture was with the bones and everything sticking, I was very likely that he could have died. Um, or at least lost his leg. And, um, you know, being out in the village, it's just, there's not a lot of hope. So if the airplane's not going to be able to come and, and, and pick that person up, you know, there's not a lot of hope. So you really have an opportunity to impact and change people's lives every single day. And if that, you know, is, is what really, you know, gets you going, then, uh, you're going to have a great, you know, you're really, really going to love it. If, if you're like, yeah, I don't care so much about that, then you might have a little bit of a tougher time. You know, that while you were talking about that, that really blows my mind. You know, you're sitting there thinking, gosh, if someone broke their leg right now in my neighborhood, I would just dial 911. I'd probably have an ambulance here within the next 10 minutes or so. Uh, but, but there, it takes a lot longer. They, they don't have that 911. I guess you, you kind of act as that. Exactly. Yeah, we are. We are the nine one one. We're the ambulance. We're the the post uh, office. We're the you know at times the the hearse. You know when it's you know somebody has passed away and we have to take the body back to their village. You know we're the the food truck delivery and everything. So, I mean, we are the connection, uh, the only connection that a lot of these villages have with the uh, the outside world. And so it's amazing. And, and you're right. I mean, on that day, I was at a completely different village, and they just got on the radio and said, Hey, you know, we've got this emergency. And, um, you know, there was, was another mission aircraft that was there, but he was heading in a different direction. They said, Hey, can you come over and uh, pick this guy up and bring him to the city? And I said, yeah, you know, that's, you know, it's a little bit, it's like a 10 minute flight, but uh, it's, it's our highest priority. So, you know, of course we're going to do that. And, uh, we picked them up and, and when you have a medical emergency in that situation, we actually don't even charge them. Uh, so we didn't charge them for the 10 minute flight, you know, from the one village to the other. We didn't charge them for the landing. We didn't charge them for the hour flight back to, uh, the city, uh, to get them to the hospital. As a matter of fact, arranged to get an ambulance. Well, you know, when we were in the air, I arranged to have an ambulance meet us at the airplane and, uh, they picked them up and took them right over to the hospital and got them all fixed up. So it's just one of the little services that we can do, um, to, to really help the, the people in the community, uh, you know, because without that, I mean, there's, there's, they don't have a lot of other options. No, gosh, no. They, you know, you mentioned something. Before we go into how you got to where you are, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what your day is like. What's, what's your mission? You know, we, we talk about the flying, but are you in the air every single day? Absolutely, yeah. We fly, well, um, we are limited, you know, by uh, 135, you know, flight time restrictions and actually in Nikeo or in Indonesia uh, standard they're a little bit more restrictive than they are even here in the US so in a single pilot operation we're limited to six flight hours per day and about 30 flight hours a week and so um, we have to live within those those restrictions but we so we fly each pilot flies five days a week six hours a day it gives us the 30 hours for the week and um, yeah, so we're flying every single day. The day normally starts off. I mean, we're up and out of there uh, 
of course, we're very close to the equator. We're, we're about three degrees south of the equator. So we have 12 hours, almost exactly 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours a night. And it, it doesn't vary. It's, uh, the sun comes up at 6 in the morning and goes down at 6 in the evening every single day. Uh, it doesn't change. And uh, so because of that, we're, we're, we're out there on the flight line, you know, about 5 o'clock, 5, 5.15, getting the airplanes loaded, getting them pre-flighted, uh, getting them ready to go. And then at, uh, well, at six and even sometimes just before six, if we, we get uh, a special approval from the tower, because the airport actually doesn't open until six in the morning. But uh, if they're going to be really busy that day or we have extra airplanes flying, they give us permission to take off before six. And we're, we're in the air and, and we fly, yeah, until about two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon. And by then we're out of our, out of, uh, our our flight hours anyways, if not out of our duty time, we're out of the flight hours and, uh, and we're, we're done and we're on the ground. And you said that you actually, uh, get paid to do that. 135 is a for-profit organization that does uh, charter, I'm assuming, and, uh, operating under those rules. So the company that you work for, the mission you work for, is that a for-profit? Right. We, um, the company that I work for, uh, actually used used to be uh, part of the Catholic Church. It was a Catholic mission. And um, over uh, about 10 years ago, they've, they decided to, to kind of separate that out or to break it out away from the church and to stand it up as its own organization. So over the last 10 years, we've been working uh, on moving from that Part 91 because we were, we were um, a nonprofit Part 91 operation. And... Um, to move it more into the the realm of of the commercial 135 because we are we're acting more as a commercial operation you know where we're taking on passengers and selling tickets and doing that kind of thing and um, even though the government allowed us to continue to operate under the the 91 rules they encouraged us very strongly to keep you know moving that process along towards 135 so we're actually still in that process today we're not fully uh Completely, we haven't got our AOC or the operations certificate out yet for the 135, but we're very, very close to that. And um, so we've been in this process. It's taken four, over four years. Uh, so you get an idea of some of the red tape that's involved in some of these other countries <laughs> to, uh, yeah, to get this taken care of. It is, it's, it's, much, it's a very long process um, and, and a lot of things that they, they like to see uh, done. And so we've been moving more and more towards that, that op, the operating more like a commercial. And, that, and that's kind of like today's missions model, I think. Um, we call it business as missions or BAM. And that's uh, you take, you know, it's, it's a for-profit or a, a commercial company that, that has a missions mindset. And it allows us the more freedom to operate more in the commercial realm, but at the same time continue to do the missions work that, that we, that's really at the heart of, of who we are and what we want to do. So now that we're on the topic of money, uh, obviously, you know, here's another misconception. I have always felt that as a mission pilot, um, and this is my limited exposure, you had to go out and find people to donate to you as a missionary, and then that would be your salary. So as the pilot itself, uh, him or herself, you do get paid, correct? 
I do, yes, and um, and that's true. Uh, there's especially out in Papua. There's there's really three types of organizations. I mean, you have the the strict straight mission organizations. I mean, you've mentioned some of them on your show before, and uh, you know there's there's a lot of them out there. Uh, people I think know their their names, so we won't go into that too much. But um, in mission aviation as a whole, yeah, that's right. Uh, you you raise your own support, and you. Um, you know, you look for churches, for individuals to sponsor you, and they give to the mission. And the mission either passes that along directly to you or, or gives you a paycheck or however that's handled internally within them. But, uh, yeah, you basically raise your own pay. <laughs> and without the, the sponsorship, you're not going to uh, to be able to go out, you know, to the mission field and do your work. And um, so that's one model. And um, and then there's the 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 more of the model where we're at in the middle, I kind of like a pseudo mission or a quasi mission. Uh, we do business as missions and, um, we actually do get a paycheck. I mean, you can come work for us. You don't have to raise your own support. Um, we'll, you know, we'll actually give you a paycheck and it may not be, you know, the largest paycheck in the world, but, uh, it's it's definitely enough and it's it's great and one of the things I think people forget too when they start talking thinking about money and whatnot is that the realization is you know living overseas you don't actually have to pay U.S. income tax on that money so you get to keep every every penny that you get and that makes a huge difference <laughs> in your uh, your spendable income I guess I should say yeah I can imagine you know speaking about the money is uh, you know a lot of people are deciding to become airline pilots. And uh, maybe possibly do a mission pilot instead. And, uh, you know, the airline pilots, they, they do some, some great work. And they also get to go out and do some missionary work on the side. But I, I want to try to get a handle on what type of pay you can expect as a mission pilot. And uh, not by asking you what you get, but m- maybe give us an idea what someone would start out at in either your organization or in general what they can expect throughout their career and possibly what they would top out at. For instance, say you were looking at like airline pilots and commercial pilots. We would, you know, as far as a pay is concerned, you're looking at about $98,000. Uh, and, and, and especially airline pilots, you're looking at about $114,000. I don't think that the mission pilot's going to make quite as much, but I don't know. What, how, how would that compare? Yeah, it actually depends. Um, uh, you know, because I was talking, there's there's like three different models. So you have the straight strict missions thing. That's that's a complete sponsorship uh, setup. So, you know, you're you're going to make whatever the mission decides to pay you, and that's usually going to be a much lower um, salary. You're going to have to go out, of course, raise all that support, do all that thing. You're going to get a lot of support from the mission, so they're going to be handling things like, you know, your transportation back and forth to your the mission field. You know, your visa paperwork, insurance, uh, generally, you know housing, all these kinds of things are taken care of for you. But your paycheck, you know, you're you're probably gonna be in the, you know, in around the thirty thousand dollar range, you know, on an average I would say uh thirty, maybe thirty five thousand, something like that, you know, is what you're gonna be, you know, realizing um, you know, you're taking home. Uh would that be in the beginning you're saying or that just in general? Well, I think in general, I mean, in missions work, your pay is not really going to go up that much. I mean, it does a little bit with long, you know, with longevity and seniority and that kind of stuff. You've been on the mission field 15 years. You're probably going to make a little bit more uh, than somebody that's just just gotten there. But you have to remember that the money is not the driving factor 
for the reason of of somebody you know being out in the mission field and doing that kind of work they're not chasing you know money to to do that so um they don't really care <laughs> yeah you know as much as possible i think they don't really care or worry too much about how much money they're making and so you know when you're looking at this just the straight missions um route and then you have where we're at with the business businesses missions model um you know, and somebody that comes to work for us is going to start out in the in the thirty five thousand dollar range, and um, you know, I think that over time that you could definitely work up into the the probably the high fifties, low sixties, um, you know, after a while in working with us. And that's pretty. Yeah. I, I, that's a decent salary, I, I think. What people start looking at, and uh, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable, obviously, to talk about money. Is, and, and I think you would be unhappy if you look at it this way, is that you know, if you go to work for, say, a regional airline, you're looking in the 20s and in some the teens as far as making money, and, and somebody in their mind right now might be thinking that, hey, you know, I could make more money working as a mission pilot, I'd get some really cool flying, uh, and I get to fly into some really neat villages, etc., and, and and make a difference. Why? I, I'm not sure that. The person might be that happy because we're going to talk a little bit about the process of getting there. Um, what are your feelings on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can definitely start off making more money. And remember, there's 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 a lot of other perks and bonuses that go along with that. I mean, not only are you going to maybe make a little bit more to start, you know, like say thirty thirty five thousand to start, you're not paying any taxes. I mean, in Indonesia, of course, you'd have to pay taxes, but the company actually pays that for you on top of, I mean, ta- taxes are already calculated into that. The company pays that. You never even see anything about Indonesian income taxes. That's all taken care of for you. And you're exempt from U.S. income taxes, so you're keeping every penny that you're making. In addition to that, the company's providing housing for you, so they're going to give you a house. They're going to pay for your electricity. They're going to pay for your your uti- all your utilities. You, you don't have any utility bills. Um, they're going to provide transportation for you. Uh, you might not necessarily have your your own car to you know to use, but we have three or four mission cars that are shared among the you know the pilots that are are there. And, and usually, availability of vehicles isn't a problem. You can just go down, sign one out, and drive it around, and it's it's free to you. You know, they even pay for the gas. So. You know, those all those benefits. When you start adding those on top of it, you know that's just, you know that all of a sudden that thirty five thousand looks more, <laughs> more like you know so your, your your lifestyle or the amount of money that you're able to actually put in the bank is more like somebody that's making sixty or seventy thousand or even more than that. So you know if the, if you were living here in the U.S. So so there are definitely some upsides in the money realm. Now there are a lot of downsides as well uh, to living there. Um, I guess the probably the the biggest one is is you're no longer in the U.S., <laughs> so it's um, you're not going to you know have those same kind of of amenities that you would have here in the U.S. that your tax dollars pay for, you know, like electricity that stays on 24 hours a day, or water that comes out of the faucet that you can drink. Um, wow. Yeah, that's that's something I never thought of there. Yeah, there's a lot of things, you know, that, you know, road systems that are just completely, you know, busted up. So you have to remember that you're you're going to be working in a third world country, so you're not going to have, you know, those um how do you want to say it? Amenities. Those <laughs> amenities, right, amenities exactly <laughs> that that you have here. Comforts here, yeah. 
Absolutely. Creature comforts. Um, you know, think, like I said, the, the power, you know, can just go off, you know, it could be in the middle of watching your favorite television show that you've uh, downloaded on iTunes or whatever. And the power goes off and you're, <laughs> you're like, dang it, <laughs> you know, and you're just sitting there and all of a sudden, you know, the air, air conditioner turns off. And so it, it's starting to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And you're laying there in bed trying to go to sleep and it's, you're, you're just sweating more and more and more. And, uh, you know, just count, you know, counting down going, when is this power going to come back on? And so it can be quite frustrating at times. Uh, beyond that, you know, I mean, just the, those types of things, of course, you know, you have differences in culture. And if you're not prepared for those, those cultural differences, they can really start to eat you up. Um, it's, you know, it's definitely, it's something called culture shock. And there are lots of programs, uh, you know, you can go online you can even go to seminars, you can go to workshops. We did, uh, before we left for, for Papua, we did a month long a thing called a cross-cultural intensive and uh, learned all kinds of things about how to deal with, with different cultural issues, um, you know, cause things are not the same. And those, those things, you know, like say you go on vacation uh, to, to some other culture, you know, say you went to Asia or you went to, you know, wherever, you know, for even down to the Bahamas or Mexico for a few weeks. And you, and you're like all those things that you're like, Oh, that is so cool. I can't believe they do it that way or that is so cute or, you know, all those things that you find really interesting and cute in those first two weeks become huge annoyances to you after six months <laughs> or eight months <laughs> or a year. And you kind of, you, you ride these waves of just, you know, culture shock and culture stress of just, you know, going, why don't they do it the way I want it to be done? You know, it, it's, it's so interesting that, um, you get you get so much of this stress uh, that and it just builds up and it builds up and it builds up and um, you know because of that actually it's an interesting a friend of mine uh, said it this way so, you know most people when they wake up in the morning um, you know their their stress levels are very low and you think of that like a water glass you know that that glass is empty and all day long. You know, you put in the different little stresses, the stresses from work and the stresses from family and the stresses from things that are going on around you. And, you know, slowly that glass fills up and probably by the end of the day, you know, it can be mostly full. And, uh, you know, but then you you rest and you, 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 you go home, you close the door and you watch some TV and you, you, you go to sleep and that glass drains back down to empty and you wake up the next morning and you're ready to go again. And uh, when you're work, working cross-culturally, you got to think of that. When you wake up in the morning, your glass is already three-quarters full. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, from, from all the stresses of just being out of your, you know, your, your comfort zone. So even though, you know, we spent an entire year learning language. We were in language, formal, full-time language school for a year. And we learned all about language and custom and culture of Indonesia, and even after all of that, we're, we're really not part of that society. I mean, we're, we're just nipping at the edges. We're nipping at the fringes of it. We understand some things, but we don't understand other things. And so there's no way for you to actually truly, you know, not be part of your culture anymore and to become part of somebody else's culture. It's, I don't think that's ever even possible. So you, you end up, you know, just with, with all these conflicting emotions and all this stress that surrounds it and you've got to find ways to deal with it. And so that's one of the, the one of the downsides of, of working and living cross-culturally is you're going to have that stress. Um, there's no way to avoid it. 
you've just got to figure out how to deal with it. And, you know, certainly, you know, taking some classes and uh, seminars and even online reading books and all kinds of other things gives you a lot of tools on ways to deal with it. But if you don't uh, take advantage of any of those things, we found, you know, some, a lot of people that have come out and they don't take advantage of that type of thing in their, you know, they're just there a year or even less and they, they, you know, just get so upset they, they leave because they can't handle it. And that's especially true. Yeah. Um, if of, of your family, of your wife, if, if you're going, if you're married and you're going to the mission field, whether, you know, truly, you know, with a mission organization or with an organization like, like AMA where I work, um, or even with a commercial company and you're going to take your wife, you need to make sure that your wife's on board with that. Uh, she may say, yeah, 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 to your face, but in her heart, she's really saying, no, 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 <laughs> I'm not going. And just thinking, you know, uh, oh, well, he's just saying that, but it'll never really happen. And um, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see that? the... How do, you, how do you convince the, your spouse or your partner to go along? I, well, right. See, that's a, that's a huge question. I, and I think if it actually takes co- convincing... I mean, I think initially, you know, just the idea of getting on the same page of saying, hey, this is something I'd like to do. Is this something that you think you'd be able to do or find interesting or would you be willing to do that? And there might be some, you know, initial, of course, there'll be initial discussions on that. But if there's a lot of resistance, I mean, I think you have to take that into account because you're, you're the one that's going to be out there having a great time. You're going to be getting up and you're going to be off flying all day long doing exactly what you want to do. And the whole time your wife or spouse, I guess I should say, could be the husband (laughs) if the wife's flying, um, you know, is sitting at the house dealing with the, I can't drink the water, the power keeps going off, these stupid dogs won't stop barking, I've got this person coming to my door that I can't understand, you know, ha, get me out of here. And uh, so you have to realize that that your partner, your spouse, is going to be dealing with those types of things. So if they're not 100% on board with it, um, yeah. It, it can really be a tough time for him. Absolutely. So how, how do you do that? I mean, how did you do that? Were you able to bring uh, your spouse with you and say, this is what we're going to be living in? Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, well, it was, it was very interesting when we, we first were, were talking about that, when I really first uh, felt like God was calling us to the mission field. I went home and I told, uh, we, you know, we, we were owning this printing business. It was fairly new. Uh, we'd only been doing it for about five years and things were growing and we still weren't sure. We, we actually also owned another company. Uh, my wife owned a custom picture framing business. And so, you know, we, and we, we were in the process, we had just finished remodeling our house. We had bought a house and, and we went through it and, and gutted it and turned it into our, you know, dream house, I guess you could say. Uh, we just finished remodeling this house and everything else. And then, um, you know, I come home and I tell her, hey, I think we, we're going to, you know, go to the mission field. We're going to move and just, you know, go go do mission aviation. And she looks at me like I'm an insane person. <laughs> you know, she's like, what, what are, you, are you serious? And, uh, you know, but it just, it just, it took a little bit of time. You know, we had to sit and talk about it and, and you know, say, well, you know, what what do we want to do with the rest of our lives? You know, I, I really, I think from the the printing business kind of was giving me a much more of a pessimistic outlook on the world. It was uh, definitely a, a cutthroat kind of business. And um, it did, I didn't like the person that it was turning me into. And, um, you know, she could see that. And she was like, you know, okay, 
after a while, I think, I think we could do this, you know, I think we could definitely do this, but it's definitely part, uh, it's, uh, giving up. I mean, there, there's a lot to give up. I mean, you have to be, I, I guess in a mindset or a willingness to be able to say, Hey, some of these material things aren't that important. And, uh, I need to be able to give those up and to, you know, make, make this jump into, into missions. And for some, some people can do that and, and others can't. For those that can, I think it's a, a great, you're not going to have a more rewarding career anywhere, I'll tell you. Um, you know, the, the things that you get to see and do and the people you get to talk to every day, it's just absolutely rewarding. But for those that find it, you know, I can't, I, you know, I, I really, I miss, uh, you know, my house and my cars and my, you know, and my, you know, air conditioning and my power that stays on and being able to drink water out of the tap you know that's uh i you know i I like roads that i can actually drive on without having my teeth get jarred out of my mouth you know uh and medical care too i mean that that you must think about that too absolutely that's that's a huge thing you know my wife is actually a diabetic and um it's uh it's always on the forefront of our mind that if there's something major happens you know Medical help, I mean, real medical help is is at least a day away by plane. I mean, we'd have to call in, you know, a, a medevac jet and uh, get medevac down to Australia or something like that. So it's uh, that's definitely in your mind that that good, real good medical care is not something that's you can go to your local ER and get instantly. Um, you know, for for guys, especially as we get older, we start thinking about what if I have some kind of a a heart episode or something like that. You know, they talk about getting to care immediately is you know is life saving. Well, I've often thought about that. You know, if I were to have a heart attack, I mean, you're pretty much dead. I guess. Right. I mean, there's there's not much you're going to be able to do to get to a to a hospital or any type type of a situation where you're going to be able to get good medical care. Not not quickly. So this brings me into another portion of what I wanted to talk about is the dangers of flying. And we just talked about the dangers of just living there. Uh, you don't have immediate medical care. Um, and gosh, you know, we don't think about those things. And, uh, and, and just to back up for a second, talking about the cultures, I've, I lived amongst another culture for a while in, in the islands. And one of the things that I did to deal with it, and I usually suggest people who go on to the missions or go to live in another culture, is to accept everything that's there. And, and realize that this is what you're living in. It's tough to do for certain things, but, uh, but when you wake up in the morning, you say, okay, I'm here, and this is what I have to deal with, and when I go back to my culture, things will be different. I found that it made my life that much easier. And Absolutely. And I was able to get along with certain things that, you know, the, uh, you know, one of the things that drove me nuts, say, the culture that I lived amongst, was the euthanizing of, of uh, animals. And I was like, gosh, you know, I, I couldn't stand that. But I said, okay, now I'm going to take myself out and say, okay, I, I can't make, I can make a small change maybe, but I can't make a large change. And I can do that one day at a time, but I'm not going to get frustrated and, and, you know, and blow up internally. Uh, so that, that really helped me a lot to deal with that. And there was, there was so many things that, you know, you could go on and list maybe a hundred things that probably bug you a little bit because you're used to a different culture, but are, are they, are things that you really can affect a change on, or if you if you try to affect that change, is it going to drive you nuts? Uh, I think that's important to understand what you can and cannot change. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's and that's one of the things that was you know we were taught very early on. Um, you know, you can ask lots and lots and lots of questions about things, 
But one of the questions that you really shouldn't ask, at least even in your own mind, is why. I mean, to ask somebody, why? Why do you do that? You know, it kind of calls into question their entire culture. And the truth of the matter is they probably can't even answer you. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, just even in, in our, our culture, I mean, this is, this has more to do with language though, right? So we have the state Kansas, right? K-A-N, K-A-N-A-S, right? Kansas. Mm -hmm. We also have Arkansas, which is our Kansas. Why do we call it Arkansas and not our Kansas? Okay. Oh gosh, that's a good example. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, you know, and those are the same kinds of questions. If somebody, if that was really bugging somebody, you know, this, you know, just getting under my last nerve, you know, under my skin, just on my last nerve, I can't understand why you don't call that our Kansas and it's really bothering me, you know, and you go up and you start shaking somebody. Why? Why? You know, they can't answer you. They don't know. And it just adds to your frustration. So when you turn that around, I mean, that's a little bit of a silly example, but if you turn that around into something that's, you know, in their culture, that's really bugging you that you just are really getting and you start really grilling them. I mean, why do you do that? That's just the stupidest thing ever. You don't do it that way. You need to do it another way. And, and they're just like, I, I, you know, I don't, I can't tell you. That's just our culture. Right. Right. That's a great example. That was awesome. One, one thing before we go on to the flying portion, uh, I want to mention about family and ask you, uh, you right now are in the United States, uh, assume visiting family and friends. We, and you talked about family uh, a lot here. Now, you brought your family with you. How about people that are, are thinking of having children, number one? Number two, how about your family back in the U.S.? How do you keep in touch and do you get to see them? So those two things right there. Yeah, that's, that's a, a great question because, you know, in, in the past, before, you know, we had Skype and we had Internet and we had FaceTime and iMessage and all these kinds of really good tools, it was really difficult to stay in contact with, you know, people, you know, your family, your loved ones back here in, in the U.S. And, you know, you could write letters in the, the snail mail and it could take months for a letter to go back and forth. And by the time you get news, you know, it's, you know, months old and you just really felt completely disconnected. But of course, today, I mean, being able to actually, you know, talk to and see your family in in real time, you know, using, you know, Skype, like some kind of a video, uh, you know, connection, whether it's FaceTime or Skype or whatever it is, um, it's amazing. You can really stay connected with your family uh, back here. But it is tough. I mean, it's still tough to be be that far away. I mean, you know, all of us have things in our families that, that happen, whether it's, births or marriages or deaths that sometimes you aren't going to be around for. You're just, it's not going to be possible, you know, for you to be able to arrange to get a ticket, maybe either money wise or, you know, just it's so quick that you can't get a ticket and and get to that event, um, you know, on time. And so there, there are definitely things that you miss out on. And that's a big, that's a huge, tough tough thing, tough call. And it's, 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 I think it's even tougher on the spouses. Um, you know, sometimes they're like, you know, I'd really like to be there. You know, we've had some, we've had, like you mentioned, I mean, my wife, my, my two girls grew up in, in Indonesia and, um, you know, they've come They're They're now graduated from high school and they're back here in the U S in college. And we miss them a whole lot. You know, when we're there, 
uh, for the year. And we've, we've kind of changed before we were in Papua for, uh, usually about three years. So we'd go there, we'd be there for three years straight and we wouldn't come back to the U S but now that our girls are here in the college, we've, we've changed that around and we've gotten enough seniority now that I'm able to say, okay, we're going to, you know, be there for a year and then back here in the U S for a month and then back, you know, so we're kind of coming back to the U S once a year. And in addition to that, actually, we're bringing our girls out back home or back to Papua um, about once a year as well. So we're able to to see them for an extended period of time, twice a year. And that works really well for our family. Um, It may not work well for for other families, but we found that that's what what works good for us and, and keeps us connected enough. But on the other hand, you know, yeah, for those people that are maybe there for a little bit longer period of time and, and they're having some struggles with family issues back home, uh, it's tough. It really is. And you've got to find find the balance, you know, and find the thing that works for your family. And, and, and that's one of the keys, too, is that just, you know, what works for one family may not be what's right for another family. And everybody has to... to um, just kind of agree and feel free, you know, to let each family find that balance for themselves and to not say, well, you shouldn't be doing that because, you know, ABC. And, and, you know, when you start to get into that, that finger pointer, I'll tell you what's good for your family, you know, things start to fall apart pretty quick. Right. Now you just said home. Where, where is home? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I mean, for me, it's very easy for, to say, oh, well, the U.S. is home. Ask my girls that question. And you're not gonna you're you're not gonna get a uh, you're not gonna be able to get an answer out of them. You know, if they say, "Well, where are you from?" or or what's you know, that's that's kind of a trait of what they call a third culture kid. I mean, you're not a, a you're not a, a in your home culture, the U.S. culture. They're also not Indonesian, and so that's their second culture. So they're kind of in between the two, and they're they're what we call a third culture kid, uh, their own culture. And, uh, so MKs or missionary kids or, or third culture kids, um, always have very interesting answers to that question. When you ask them, Hey, where are you from? They, they, they don't really know how to answer that. Or some of them make up elaborate, you know, answers to, you know, kind of throw people off, but it, it's crazy. I would say that our kids probably consider Papua home more than they do the U S that's interesting. You know, that's uh, we go through that with my wife who grew up overseas, and uh, she had one, one year she lived in the U.S., and it was here in the Tampa Bay area, and we always say uh, she's from Tampa, originally born in, in New York, but uh, did not spend hardly any of her, her life in the U.S. except for her adult life. So it's a weird, weird <laughs> home, but it's easier to explain that than to, to go into that, that whole conversation. Can I, I can understand that. That's, that's, that's pretty interesting. But, you know, now we, we talk a lot about culture and, and your family and 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 having fun and down in oh and by the way how what do you do for fun I mean you, uh, what does your family do is there sports is there you know TV uh, recreation there is there's lot there's so many things to do and and by the area that you know that you know you live in the base that you're in almost every base has some very unique opportunities um, that are different you know we live on the coast in the in the big uh, capital city of Papua called well the capital is Jayapura um, and the airport's just a little bit out of the capital in its own little town called Sintani. So we live in the town of Sintani, but it's really part of the the capital city of Papua. And um, so right there, you know, it's 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 on the coast, low land, sea level. We have lots and lots of beaches. I mean, beautiful, beautiful beaches. And you can just go to, you know, beaches all day long if you want. And, you know, you sit out there and um, 
it's it, it's really nice that they've they've got you know they they make these little covered uh, huts and whatnot you know on the edge of the beach and so you can rent one of those for pretty cheap for the day you know, like five dollars for the day or whatever just take your whole family and stay on the beach. There's some other beaches that are you have to actually get on a boat and and uh, take a boat out to the beach. But when you get out there, you practically have the entire beach to yourself. Um, it's just amazing uh, and just so beautiful. Um, also, the area where we're at was there was a lot of activity during World War II. MacArthur had uh, a headquarters base there. So there are a lot of, of World War II kind of, um, you know, uh, what do you want to say, a sites that you can go and visit and, uh, you know, see different things about uh, World War II. In fact, some of the lots of the names of the places that we um, – that we call were actually created by servicemen during World War II, and uh, it's it's interesting to get some of the history uh, of of those kinds of things. Wow. You can also, yeah, it's amazing. There's so many different things to do. You can drive into the jungle. You can go look at the palm oil plantations. There's a, a huge number of palm oil plantations uh, just a few miles outside of town, and um, rivers. You know all kinds of rivers you can go to. So there are so many things uh, for the, for the ladies. Um, actually, you know, one of the things that, you know, instead of sitting in your house all day long, if the husband's out flying all, all day and, and I'm going to say that generically, okay, the husband. So um, it's just because pr- primarily most of the mission pilots that we have right now are male. That doesn't mean that that's how it has to be. I mean, there are female mission pilots as well, but just, so if I, if I'm saying it that way, please don't be offended. It's just kind of, kind of the way it is right now. But, um, so the husbands are, if they're out flying and the wives uh, don't have to sit at home all day, they've got ladies sports you can do. My wife is involved. She has basketball and, and volleyball and soccer and hockey and things that they do every single day. Um, sports wise so there's so many different things there's there's guys men's basketball leagues and stuff in the evenings that you can join in on and oh there's so many things to do you you can't really get bored yeah that that's awesome so now and and now that you've said all this i'm going to go out and research everything about uh, indonesia and papua indonesia and actually absolutely fascinating well we'll try to get some links from you and and i'll put them at the bottom of the show notes at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 67 to to look into some of these sites that's that's pretty pretty awesome but now let's talk aviation now let's go back to now that we know the lifestyle because it it is so foreign and i really want to concentrate on on what it's like to be a mission pilot and the aviation side of things, we're we're you're doing some really cool flying. You're doing you're flying in the mountains. You have to really pay attention all the time. Uh, a lot of times, again, we look at the all the glamour, but there. Let's talk a little bit about the dangers of your actual job. I mean, it, what? Give us some really good examples as to what you would expect where you are as compared to the in the U.S. For instance, I was flying over a mountain the other day, 10,000 feet above it, and I was saying, wow, you know, I'm pretty close to that mountain. Uh, you, you wouldn't consider that close, would you? No, uh-uh, absolutely. No, 100 feet is close. Uh, <laughs> we consider a ridge crossing anything uh, below, uh, between 100 and 500 feet above the ridge line. That's wow. considered a ridge crossing. So anything above 500 feet above the ridge line, we don't even consider a ridge line crossing. That's just going over the mountain. So, so there's, there's a danger there in, in flying across the mountains and the ridges and, and learning how to do that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there are some very specific things, uh, you know, that we we teach and train uh, all the new pilots. And like we said earlier, it's not something that you have to go and say, oh, I want to be a mission pilot. I better go, you know, 
go find some mountains and and fly up these valleys and do this kind of thing. No, no, no. Don't don't even think about trying to do anything like that without, you know, the proper training, without somebody that's experienced that knows what they're doing with you. And you don't need to do that because we're all we're looking for is somebody that can make good sound decisions. And, you know, do, doing those kinds of things isn't showing good to sound decision making. Mm-hmm. Um Anyways, uh, yeah, but there are there are a lot of real dangers. I mean, just from the moment that we take off, I mean, the air traffic control system in Indonesia is so much less than you get, you know, here in the U.S. I mean, there's only one radar installation on the entire island. I mean, it's where we're at, and um, you know, but that's only good out to 50 or 60 miles out from out from the airport. And once you get beyond that, I mean, you're not in radar coverage. You're not um, talking to, you know any air traffic controller anymore. I mean, you're pretty much on your own. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of live to get into that. Well, I can't wait to hit the 60 mile mark and, uh, you know, get rid of the air traffic controllers and say, okay, I, I'm doing my own thing now. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, that, but you have to realize, I mean, even from the minute you take off, I mean, you get 10 miles outside of, uh, of the airport and, there is nothing. I mean, you are flying over a hundred miles of of swamp and rainforest and jungle, and a in a single engine, right? And mm. now, uh, and that's really why we've you know we've gone to an all turbine fleet. You know, we used to when I first started uh, flying out in uh, Papua, I was I started out flying a two hundred six. And it was a turbo 206 and, you know, flying over the mountains and and all that kind of thing. But you start thinking about that, you know, over the jungle, over the mountains in a single engine piston going, huh, wow. You know, and we train so hard for, you know, the what ifs, you know, what if the engine fails? What if, you know, this emergency happens? What if that emergency happens? We train really, really, really hard on emergency procedures because, you know, you really don't have a lot of, of options and your decisions will make huge impacts on, you know, whether you survive or don't. And so we, you know, we train really, really hard on emergency procedures, but, um, you know, now that, you know, we, we all, there's almost no piston aircraft flying in Papua anymore. I mean, just the ability to get Avgas is, is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's so hard to get and so expensive. I think the last I heard we were paying about $19. If you train, you know, traded the dollars, it's night about $19 a gallon for Avgas. Wow. Yeah. That makes it a little bit cost prohibitive to actually do any flying. And, uh, so it was tough. So we've, we've gotten rid of, of almost all the piston aircraft and, uh, we're, we've gone to all turbines. So I fly a caravan, I'm flying a caravan, right now the grand caravan and uh so we have two aircraft and um i'm not of course you're i think most many of your listeners will be familiar with the the cessna caravan um largest single engine turboprop made it's uh seats well in the u.s it seats nine in other places of the world we can seat up to 15 people in the airplane but um uh, it's 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 a it's a big airplane. It's a big airplane. Why, why can you seat more? Uh, we're not limited to the FAA restrictions on the number of seats that are allowed to be installed in the airplane. It's more. It's either by so if we're single pilot, we can fly only uh, nine passengers, and if we are um, 
if we have two pilots, we can fly 14. So uh, you can have 14 passengers, plus you have the one extra crew member that's uh, 15 seats. But we have, so you can have 14 passengers in the back, um, nine passengers if you're a single pilot. And of course, that all depends on your insurance. And before, actually, we were flying 12 passengers under our insurance, but um, our insurance allowed it. But then as we started to move more from the 91 realm into the 135, they, said, you know, 135 for single pilot limits to nine passengers. So, you know, we had to cut back to take some of the seats out. And so we're, we're just doing nine packs right now, unless we have, uh, two pilots then we can do 14, but it's more driven by the insurance. And those are the 135 limitations, uh, imposed by Indonesia, which are different than the FA limitations. Interesting. Yeah. So now with the turbines, you feel much more comfortable. I, you know, obviously, they're, they're more reliable than the piston. Um, have you ever had any issues with your, your engine or had any really harrowing experiences? Uh, I had one. Um, it w- actually wasn't a problem with the engine, but it was a problem with the oil pressure indication. I was actually uh, I am, uh, in the clouds, IMC, and uh, flying, I mean, directly over the top of a, the highest mountain ridge in the area. Well, I was going through a pass, but I had mountains that were, I was at about uh, 10,000 feet or uh, 10, 10, maybe 11, between 10 and 11,000 feet. I'm trying to remember exactly. I have mountains on my right side that are up, up to about 14.5 and mountains on my left that are a little bit higher than I was as well. And uh, going through the pass there and IMC and, uh, yeah, just you know, right, right, directly over the pass. It, it always works this way, right? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I, I get uh, you know low oil pressure indication, and you know all the all the alarms and all the bells are going off in the airplane, and um, you know it is amazing how fast that um, that adrenaline kicks in and that that blood pressure just goes up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the minute you start to hear those those warning bells going off, I mean, it does it just it doesn't take but a second for you to, you know, really start to, to screw yourself into the roof, you know, when you're in the mountains and, uh, you know, in the clouds at the same time. And you know that, I mean, you can't really descend because there are, there's just mountains everywhere. And, uh, so, you know, go through the emergency procedures and everything. And of course it calls for, you know, idle power. And, you know, if you're going to start descending, you're going to start doing a glide. So anyways, I was close enough. I was able to to actually bring the power back and 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 head towards an airport and land at the airport, it turned out that it was just a a bad oil pressure indication, right. and there was a- actually nothing wrong with the engine at all. But uh, and it you know it just it took um, it took a couple of minutes. I'm still in the air working through the emergencies and working through the checklist and working through just thinking about how things are. Going you know that's just a bad indication. That's just a bad indication. But of course you still have that uncertainty. Uh, you know, going on in your head that, okay, it might be a bad indication, but maybe my engine's going to quit any second. So, um, yeah, that's pretty scary. And you know, that's something that we don't experience much in, in the U S unless you, you know, obviously fly in the mountainous area. And it's really, what's interesting is you talk about emergencies and, and training all the time, but it's a lot different when you actually have one, I guess. Absolutely. You know, you can train for it and, you know, really, really hard. And we do. We train all the time. We're really constantly pushing the emergency procedures. And especially with the newer pilots, you know, we're just grilling them over and over and over again. I mean, we are just, 
I mean, you know, they're getting tired of it. Cause it's like, can I just complete one flight without having, you know, four or five simulated emergencies, you know? And, uh, we're just constantly talking about it. But when the real thing does happen to you, you're really glad that you did all that training because it just starts, it just kicks in. And even though that, uh, that blood pressure goes up and the panic starts to set in, and, uh, you know, the adrenaline's hitting and everything, you know, your hands start shaking, you're still, you know, uh, able to, you know, have your head clear and to be able to say, okay, Hey, you know, here's my checklist. Here's my procedures. Let's go through this. Let's do it right. You know, as opposed to, you know, giving into that, I think that panic of saying, Hey, you know, I've got mountains that are just right below me and I can't, you know, I've got no place to land. I've got nothing. And, uh, if you start to worry and think of that way, you know, yeah, bad things start to happen. So how did you get to this point? We haven't talked about that. Like, for instance, you just made a decision to become a mission pilot. How did you go from there to applying, fly, finding a place to fly? And then uh, walk us through your, your training. Did it just take a week to train, months? How did, how did that happen? Well, actually, um, yeah, from, from the time that I said, hey, I think, you know, we're going to, you know, God wants us into mission aviation. From that point, it was about eight years until I, I, you know, we actually stepped foot into Papua. So there was a lot of training. Yeah, there was a lot of things um, in, in, in between. And uh, at the time, and, and it's still even somewhat true today, I mean, if you're a pilot, that's great. But some of the missions still require you to be a licensed mechanic as well. So you have to have your airframe and power plant mechanics license. And uh, so that takes a, a bit of time to get depending on how you do it. I, the way I did it was I did an apprenticeship. So I worked at, in a, an aviation maintenance uh, hangar and um, underneath a, a certified mechanic and spent three years or, well, it's two and a half years, 30 months uh, working on aircraft and learning, you know, by hands-on doing and then taking the test and passing that. So that took about three years to do that. It takes, you know, it takes a bit of time, of course, to, to raise all your support, um, before, you know, even before we started doing the maintenance training, we were starting to raise support and, and do all that. And then after I got done with the, the maintenance training, you know, we started uh, towards the end of, it, we started looking, well, what mission organization do we really want to go with? You know, and there's been several that you've mentioned on the show before. And, you know, those are all the big names. And, you know, of course, so we've talked to all those and, and even some of the smaller, some, some smaller organizations, some smaller missions. And it was really quite interesting because we had decided, well, there's, there's, you know, one big mission group in, in particular that we know that, yeah, that we'd be a pretty good fit for, and we would work out well with. And so we kind of backburnered that one. We said, well, we'll just wait and keep that in the back pocket. If nothing else seems to really be a good fit for us. And so we went and looked at some of these smaller organizations and it was, it was really kind of funny because, um, went out to, to Philadelphia and, was interviewing with a, a smaller organization there and they only had one flight program and that was in Papua. And so we, we talked to him and talked to him and said, it came, came out of the interview just going, you know, we really don't want to work in Papua. We really don't think that God's calling us there. We really feel like God wants us in Africa. And, uh, so, you know, Thanks, but no thanks. We don't think that this is a good fit for us uh, because uh, we really know that God's wanting us in Africa. And um, so we left there and, and talked to a few other organizations over the next few months and then went to our final backup, you know, the the, the big one. And uh, so we went in, you know, did all the kind of the interviewing and, and all that stuff. 
and you, you, you get about a two-week uh, orient uh, or evaluation. I'm sorry. No, it's long, about a month evaluation, I guess it is. You have a couple weeks of what they call non-technical evaluation where they look at all those things of how do you deal with culture and culture stress and how do you deal with, you know, um, conflict resolution and how do you deal with, um, you know, different things personally in your life. How do you handle that? You know, how, you know, you know, are you a good, you know, member and standing with your local church and these kinds of things. And, and then they also go through a technical evaluation where they put you in the airplane and, and let you fly. And they look at, you know, evaluating your skills, not necessarily your piloting skills, but your decision-making skills. And, um, at the end of that time period, then they kind of give you a thumbs up or thumbs down. And they gave us a thumbs up and said, yeah, you know, we think we'd like for you to, to come work with us. It's, you know, everything's okay. And uh, so you, your final meeting, they go in and they say, okay, we're, you know, this is where you get your, your field assignment, you know, where, where they're going to send you. And, and we had put in, you know, they, they allow you to put in some requests. Well, we think that we'd like to either go to somewhere in Africa or I think we actually put Afghanistan on the, the list that was kind of before – Afghanistan is what it is today. Okay. And yeah. And um so we went into the meeting and they said, you know, we got your request and everything, but we really think that you'd be a very good fit and we're gonna send you to uh Papua. <laughs> we were like, oh no. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. We just we turned down this other thing with because we just didn't feel like we wanted to go to Papua. And so um yeah, it was just really clear that, you know, God wanted us to be in Papua. And so that's where we ended up going. And, and we've loved it. We haven't looked back and we've just loved it ever since. It's been amazing. So that whole process, um, you know, you have the, the technical evaluation, the non-technical evaluation. You know, then, you you know, you get accepted. You get your field assignment. Then you, you, you know, kind of put together the information on how to raise your support. And you go off and you start raising support. And, you know, for however long that takes, you know, a year or even longer sometimes to raise all your, all your support. And once that's done, you can come back and you do the, the actual training, you know, the, for your job, the flight training, the standardization, they call it flight standardization. And, you know, it's, it's them teaching you, uh, well, pretty much just like in an air, any airline, right? It's, you know, you go in and you learn how that, that airline does it, you know, okay. how, how do they want you to fly the airplane? You know, what are your checklists and, you know, how do you, how do you approach every, you know, every single, you know, thing. And so they standardize you into the way they want you to fly. And of course you have maintenance standardization as well. You've got to pass the maintenance portion and the flight portion and uh, everything. And that takes, yeah, about another month to six weeks then you head out to your field assignment and you go into language school so after you get all done there and you're all like primed and ready to go fly then they send you to language school for a year and uh, that's full time so you don't touch an airplane for a year and so you're flying you know you're uh, you're doing language school and that's it they do it in a completely different area than where you're actually going to be flying so you know, we were supposed to be, we're flying in Papua, but our language school was actually in Java, uh, in a city called Bandung that was near, near Jakarta. So, you know, very far away from the, from, from, from your field assignment. So that way you don't have that temptation of saying, Hey, I'm going to just go over to the hangar and see what's going on. They want you to really focus on, on the, the language learning. And it was great. We learned a ton about language and culture. And when that time was finished, then we went to our base and then you start all over again with, uh, you know, field checkout. And that usually takes three to four months. And, you know, I'd say roughly probably 
200, 250 hours of flying. And, and then you're checked out into the easiest, most simple runways that, that are there, you know, and it, it takes, you know, over the next three to four years for you to actually get checked out into every airstrip, you know, that, that, that's in that area. It, it, it takes a while. If someone's thinking about doing this just to build time and, and go on, uh, do some mission flying, and then, hey, I'll just uh, go back to the U.S. and fly for the airlines, it, it may be a much longer process than they had imagined, just like myself. I didn't imagine it to be this long. So it probably wouldn't be the best thing, do you think? Well, it, it, it sort of depends. I mean, I was laying out kind of the route that, it, that we took, you know, to get to where we're at today. Um, you know, now not being with the same organization that we were when we, we went to Papua, we, in the middle, we actually changed, uh, companies, if you will, we changed from one mission organization to another one. That's now more of a, <clears throat> as I said, like a, a business or a commercial operator. It's, it's also operating as missions. Um, in, in that process or path is, is much shorter. Um, we don't require the same kinds of, of, training uh and and whatnot beforehand we do almost all of the training in country so you know if you have the out but our hour requirement is a little bit higher with with the other organization i mean if if you're at four or five hundred hours you're you know you're good to go uh our hour requirement is actually a bit higher we're looking for the pilot that's somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred hours total time um so we're looking for a little bit more experienced pilot, but we will also take little, you know, lower time guys. We actually have a program where we're kind of just feeling our way through. It was hard for us to find uh, higher time guys, and then actually one one of the problems that we have even had with higher time guys, we've you know we've had guys that come in with four thousand to nine thousand hours of flying experience, and you know it goes back to the whole. Uh, kind of primacy thing, you know, with the flight instructing, you know, the things that you learn first, you learn best is so hard to unteach them. You know, they've got 9,000 hours of flying an airplane and they know, they know that they know how to fly the airplane and they're right. If you're flying in the U S under the U S ATC system and landing on runways that are 10,000 feet long and that kind of thing, you know, it's a totally different ball game when you're flying in the mountains and landing on a runway that's, you know, a thousand feet or 1100 feet long. Um, you know, it's, it's a completely different, completely different deal. And so we've had a hard time with some of the real high time guys unteaching them, you know, some of the things that they know to be true and then reteaching them in the way that we want them to be. So now we are looking at, at lower time guys and saying, Hey, if this is such a struggle for us, maybe it'd be better for us to take a lower time guys that hasn't, you know, formed those, you know, you know, hasn't gotten that experience and hasn't formed those, those ideas and said, Hey, let's teach them the way that we want it, want them to be taught from the get go. And it's, it's working, but it's, we have one, one pilot right now that we hired. He only had uh, about 280 hours uh, total time when he came on board. And it's kind of our great experiment to see how it's going to work out. But, you know, his training process, instead of being a couple months, two, three months long, is now it's you know going to be six to eight months uh, long. So, interesting. There, there are options. There are options to get to the to where we're at faster. You know, if you're looking to build time, but I, yeah, I really hesitate to say it. If if that's your goal, you're just looking for to go someplace to build time. Uh, you know, and, and you want to go go fly for the airlines. 
you know, coming to Papua, coming to, you know, the jungles and, and, and doing the type of flying we're, we're doing is, is not, it, it's probably not for you. I mean, we're, we're not a place to, I mean, yes. Can you build time? Sure. If you don't love what you're doing, you don't really want to be here and you don't love the people. Are you going to have a miserable time? Absolutely. It'd be better to look for something else. I would say. Yeah. And I, I think that's some great advice because that's, that's a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice to get to where you are. But as a but as a career and a career mission pilot, which which you are. By the way, how many years uh, have you been doing this now? Uh, we've been in Papua ten years. Ten years. Ten years now. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so you're not leaving anytime soon. <laughs> you it sounds like you really enjoy it, and you can tell by by your attitude towards towards Papua and also towards the type of flying you're doing, and you're making a big difference. And and that's that's exciting. There's a lot of people that I fly with at the airlines that are asking me, gosh, you know, I've, I've lost it. I've, uh, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this. I feel like I'm just a, a glorified bus driver. And I said, you know, in, in reality, there's a lot more to what you do than, than just bringing people from point A to point B. It's, a lot of it is, is actually, you know, dealing with the emergencies, how infrequent they are, but you, you're ready for that. That's why they're paying you is, is to think outside the box when you have both emergencies and dealing with passengers, et cetera. But, it, you know, in your case, you're, you actually get to see exactly what you're doing. You know, when I'm, when I'm carrying, say, uh, somebody to go to a funeral or, say, I'm carrying uh, the remains of somebody to a, to a funeral, we're, we're pretty much detached from that. I'm usually sitting inside an air-conditioned cockpit while everything else is going on around me. I don't, I don't touch and feel it. Whereas the difference between what I do and you, you do is that you, you actually touch, you feel, you, you experience uh, the people and the culture and what's happening behind the cockpit door. Uh, because you're part of it, and that's that's a huge difference, and that's really to me that's really exciting, and that may be a route for someone to go, um, but you know again there's there's some limitations. You, you know you're not gonna be able to have those things that you have here in the U.S. that you may have gotten used to, or wherever you live in the bigger cities, especially working for a big airline, um, and also the the pay might be a little bit different. But you know it's not just all about the money. But it sounds like you can make a decent living, and and have fun. I love Absolutely. That. Yeah, you can you can make a really good living doing it. It's, um, you know, yeah, it's all the other things that you just mentioned that that you know you have to make the decision where where do I want to be? And it's not something you have to decide. Hey, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, but it's something you know you say. Hey, I, I really want to commit to doing this. It's not just a a, a, a placeholder, but I'm going to commit to doing this. I really want to do it. Maybe I don't want to do it for the rest of my life. Maybe I just want to do it for three years or five years. Hey, nothing wrong with that. We'd love to have you come and fly with us for sure. If you're committed, say, man, I really love that. And we we've recently we actually had. Um, about a, uh, one of our newer pilots, uh, he's from uh, Switzerland actually, and he was he was sitting he was a first officer on an Airbus A320, yeah, flying it with for uh, Swiss Air, and was having a great. He said, you know what, I just I got to get down and feel the dirt and you know just get into. The, he's he's actually on a extended furlough. I guess they could do that. I think up to two years or something he's taking two years off from his airline career and coming and flying for us because he's just said i just love this kind of flying i just want to just be here and and you know be with the people and and challenge myself in this way with the flying in the jungle and everything and he's having a great time so i have no idea if he's going to go back to the airline when he gets done or if he's going to decide to stay that's what he's he's trying to decide i guess but uh yeah it's amazing 
that, that's terrific. And that's, you know, a lot of people, they, they want to find meaning in life, and sometimes they take those breaks. And sometimes they take those breaks, and they never come back. And they realize what they've been missing their whole life. And sometimes they take a break and they they uh, they go back to where they were. Uh, it wasn't what they thought. But the good the thing is though, and and I, I tell people this all the time, is that you know go down that path because what's going to happen is you're going to regret never trying it. And uh, you know until you're you know you look at a decision, you say, well I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Suddenly you're 65 years old, and you never do it. And so exactly. you really, I think, should should go for it. Uh, of course, be responsible. Like this person you were talking about has a furlough, can go back to their job, uh, and then say they decide, boy, you know what? I don't want to do the, the airline thing anymore. I want to stay where I am now. And, and that's that's terrific. And, and that's where I think you would suggest, I'm sure, this career for people that that love, you know, aviation and love being able to touch and feel. But but who else, who would you suggest this to? And not, not putting words in your mouth. Yeah, no, I mean, I would suggest this to, to anybody. I mean, of, of course, you know, having that love of aviation and, you know, having, uh, you know, some some skill. I mean, you, you, you can't just be, you know, a complete dud right. <laughs> of a pilot. I mean, you got to have some skill. But assuming, assuming those things and you just love flying, that's great. But beyond that, I mean, just loving people. I mean, to be able to get out there and – to really get involved in people's lives, to, to tr- truly care about them. Uh, you know, just not just because it's somebody, you know, but just because the, Hey, they're a person and they're hurting and they have this need or that need. And, uh, to be able to say, Hey, I, I can do something about that. I might not be able to do something about every need in the entire world. You know I mean? I, I can't, I can't go out there and so- solve these problems in Israel and Gaza and I can't solve these problems in the Ukraine, but I can make a difference in this one person's life right now by either, you know, bringing him some food or, you know, taking him to the city or, you know, whatever it is, getting him to the hospital if he has a medical problem or, or whatever, whatever those needs are. But to be able to sit down and say, hey, I, I really can make a difference in this one person's life and then do that, have the power to be able to do that. But say, hey, I got this airplane here. You know, I mean, and we do that all the time, whether it's, you know, of those physical physical needs or, you know, even, you know, we have, uh, there's a lot of the local uh, Papuan uh, believers there, you know, they're evangelists or they're, they're pastors. And they say, Hey, you know, I need to go to this other village. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to do a, you know, a church service or whatever over this other village. But I, I, you know, I can't walk there. It's going to be too far. Hey, could you fly me over there? And to, to have that freedom and that ability to be able to say, Hey, yeah, you know what? Just jump on the plane. And the reason why is because I just brought in, you know, a ton of, you know, 1500 kilos or, you know, say 2,800 pounds or whatever of, of rice that the government paid for. So they paid for this airplane both ways. And, uh, so it's completely paid for. Can I throw you on? Yeah. Can you pay? No, you can't afford to pay. That's all right. Just get on the airplane. I'll fly you over to this other village, you know, no charge, just, just free. And to be able to have freedom to be able to do that and, uh, to meet those needs. And, and by doing that with just one little simple act, I mean, you have no idea how, how many other people's lives will be affected by just that one little simple thing that, that you were able to do. And, um, 
it's always amazing to be able to, well, sometimes you see those results. You know, I've had people come up to me years afterwards and say, hey, you don't remember me, but you took me to the hospital, you know, four years ago. And, uh, you know, if I hadn't gotten there, I'd be, I would have, I would have died. And, uh, but I did get there and, you know, I, I lived and I'm back in my village and now I'm, you know, I, while I was out there in the city, I got some teach, some training, and now I'm, you know, I'm either a pastor in this area, or I'm a, I'm a woodworker, or I'm building houses, or I work for the government now, and I'm a, I'm a village healthcare worker, and you know, I, when I was at the hospital, I, I learned all these things, and I found I really enjoyed that, and so now, you know, I came, got training, and came back as a, as a village healthcare worker, and you know, there's just so, so many things you don't get to see the op, the, the end result a lot of times. But uh, just the differences you make in one person's life. I think I told you that story or, or you read a part of that uh, in a previous podcast about, uh, yeah, I guess it's been almost a month and a half ago now, two months ago, about the, the lady I was bringing back. She was trying to deliver and give birth but uh, had been in labor for like three days and hadn't been able to get out. So we get her on the airplane and uh, we're flying, flying her to the, to this, this, the main city. It was about 60, 70 miles out of the city. She ends up actually delivering the baby in the airplane. Wow. And, uh, yeah, we got there. And, of course, we had already called for an ambulance, and the ambulance met us at the airplane. Um, the interesting thing is um, in their culture, they, they tend to name their babies after places, um, you know, places or kind of significant events or things that are happening around them at the time. And so I was sitting there going, you know, my name is Brian, um, you know, well, it's a girl. Okay. Well, Brianna works, you know? So anyways, the call sign of our aircraft is RCB or Romeo, Charlie Bravo. That's the RC stands for Roman Catholic. And then, you know, alpha Bravo, Charlie, whatever. So all of our planes are Romeo, Charlie, something. They, so they named the little girl, Charlie Bravo. And, uh, (laughs) so I have a little, little Charlie Bravo running around out there now. (laughs) (laughs) That's an awesome story. I love that. As a matter of fact, we'll link to that at the bottom of the show notes, that, that story you had there. But man, you got the best job in the world. You get to do some fun, challenging flying that actually makes a difference. I mean, what other better aviation job is there? Yeah, I can't think of one. I mean, not for me. Yeah, the sacrifices are huge, but the rewards are huge, too. Wow. You know, I, I, if you're thinking about becoming a, a, a mission pilot, uh, you know, obviously listening to Brian, you're probably stoked after this, this interview. And, and I, I am, too. Boy, I tell you, I, I could go out tomorrow and do something like this if, as long as you had Macy's and air conditioning, my wife would come along. <laughs> we're working on it. I think they just got the first mall down in Jayapura open, so we're working on it. Well, gosh, this is terrific, Brian. This is this is so awesome. All this information you've related to us. Is there anything else you want to add uh, before before we wrap up here? I I don't think so. I mean, I think you hit on on everything. There's um, yeah, just uh, you know, just this this idea of yeah, if you're if you're if you love flying and you love people and you're looking for something to do, you know, consider it. I mean, consider mission, if not missions, like strict missions. I mean, something like where we're at, where we're kind of, you know, half in the commercial world, half in the mission world, or even we haven't really even talked about the the other commercial operators. I mean, there are straight, strict commercial operators that, that fly out in our area as well. And their, their pay is a little bit higher, but they've got a completely different, um, you know, we, we, we tend to be in one base and those guys, 
are kind of nomads. I mean, they're, you know, wherever their contracts are, wherever the planes are, I mean, they're, they're living in this town, you know, they're, they're here for two weeks and over in this other town for two weeks and they don't really have a, a home base, which is to me, I mean, for a family, I mean, that's just not possible. I mean, they, they hire mostly only single guys, but, uh, you know, so there's uh, the whole commercial straight commercial realm as well, which I think I feel for me is probably less rewarding because you don't get to, to really, you know, meet the needs of the people. I mean, you're just strictly looking, you know, you're doing what the company's telling you to do. And, um, it's a little bit more difficult, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a great opportunity. And, uh, yeah, if it's, it sounds like, Hey, you're something you're wanting to do. I mean, feel free to contact me. Um, I don't know. Do you yeah, want to do that? I could, uh, if you don't want to give out your information, I'll, I can, you can go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact and we'll forward you the emails. And uh, I'm sure Brian wouldn't mind answering those. Um, sure, absolutely. And, you can put my email address uh, out there. That's too, that's fine too. Okay. I, I don't care. Yeah, I we'll, don't mind. We'll do that if you want to contact you directly. We'll have a link at the bottom of the show notes. Uh, that'd be aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 67. I'll also have a link to the other thing that he talked about, his story. Uh, I don't know the actual episode right now offhand, but I have a link at the bottom of uh, at the bottom of the show notes there. Also, uh, I'll show you one of the blogs of uh, what they're doing there. And and Brian, if you have any pictures, please send them along. We'd love to we'd love to see the airplane you're flying in some of the airports you've flown into. That'd be that'd be terrific. That'd be just awesome. Absolutely. You can you can even go to um, uh, YouTube and just uh, you know probably uh, search for like Papua flying. There are there's hundreds of videos on there of uh just takeoffs and landings and and the people and and flying in the area of papua and the mountains and all that stuff and there's a lot of videos posted up on youtube so i would say probably something like you know flying and uh papua in a search engine on uh, youtube would would give you a lot of videos cool. I've, I've posted a few too up there oh, you have. well i'll tell you what yeah. we'll put one at the bottom of the show notes and uh we'll put one of your videos at the bottom there just to show people what it's like that'd be totally awesome um, but you, you know, Brian, thanks for being here, man. We've we've been talking for so long, uh, emailing back and forth, and I've been wanting to get somebody on to that's a mission pilot. You know, it's very difficult to uh, get a mission pilot on because, well, you're overseas, and uh, but but with the, the the wonderful internet, we can talk to anybody. You're here in the U.S., but uh, what's really neat, I just uh, did an interview in the Sinai Peninsula. I did another interview in Bali. Uh, the world is coming closer with this with this internet, and that's the one great thing about being overseas. Like uh, like you said, you can actually talk to your friends back home with Skype. Uh, well, absolutely. That's, that's yep. when the internet's up. <laughs> that's <cool. laughs> not always that way. <laughs> that's right, and that's why we had to put off this interview for a little while, just because I was like, you know, let's uh, wait till I got to the U.S. Just because, yeah, I mean, it, we we could have a great internet connection, but you never know when the power is going to go out or the internet's just going to stop. So you could be in the middle of it and have the whole thing just crash on you so yeah but you know you just deal with those and you work around it and and you keep moving on i suppose awesome well brian again thanks for being here i really appreciate it. this has been been awesome i and you've answered all the questions that that listeners have sent in uh, and if you're listening right now and you have some more questions for brian just uh, go to aviation slash contact page and you can send them to us we'll answer them online uh, we'll answer them over the podcast, and also uh, I'll have his email address down there at the bottom. You can you can ask him directly your questions, and uh, he's more than willing to help you out there. 
Also, uh, just a quick, the uh, scholarship of the week is the Michelle North Scholarship for Safety. You can go to episode 67, click on that, and get some information. If you like the podcast, please uh, visit our sponsors in the right column there. Go to aviationcareerspodcast.com and check that out. Also, uh, consider signing up for our scholarships page. Uh, We do a one-month free trial. It's only $5. If you want to check it out, you get to see all the scholarships. Another thing that we're adding to the, the page and to the website is I'm taking all the lectures that I do. I do a safety lecture at least once a month for an organization, and I'm posting those out there, and that's for annual members. Currently, annual membership is uh, $60, $50 if you pay up front, and we are adding a $5 per month as long as you agree to a, a year membership. Actually, that and that's cancelable at any time. So if you don't like it after two months, you can cancel it at any time. That gives you access to everything. The Pilot Jobs book and all the different courses that we have online. Uh, and, and of course, but the most important thing is that when you're looking into a career and you're looking at, at what is your career goal is keep an open mind. You know, a lot of you are thinking right now, this is awesome what Brian's doing and this is something I want to do. Well, go start researching it and, and share it with your family and your friends that are going to help you out. A lot of people are going to say, hey, listen, this, this sounds crazy. You shouldn't do it. I'm sure Brian's been through that. But, but research it. And if it's something you want to do, then go for it. It's, it's going to take a while to get there. But, but you can do it. And then you might get there and say, hey, listen, this isn't what I want to do. I'm going to go down a different path. There's so many of this. Keep this in mind. So many of us that have gone down a path and gone down a career. Like I was in computers. I was also in the seafood business. And then I wound up in something that I absolutely love, and that's flying. You never know where you're going. 20 years ago, uh, I would have told you I was going to remain as a software engineer. Now I'm flying airplanes around the world and and have a podcast about aviation. I didn't know I was going to do that 20 years ago. So you don't know either. Just keep an open mind, but keep moving forward. Take a step forward in your career. And as I like to say, you know, think of something you can do today that moves you further towards that goal. It can be something simple, looking something up on the Internet, reading a book, uh, going to a class, doing something online, visiting the website, fasafety.gov, and take one of their courses, that type of thing. But do something. Email us with uh, one of your experiences. If you are someone that's flown overseas, I'd love to hear your story. If you have questions, go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact. Well, folks, I appreciate you listening, and uh, safe flying. We'll talk to you next episode. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, Compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.